This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Welcome to the next episode of Mentors for Military, joined by Paul Martinez. Hey, guys. And we've got a uh, really cool guest. Um, a lot of you guys probably follow him on Instagram, but uh, we're going to dive into his background. Ryan, welcome to the show. I appreciate you guys having me. Where is it you're originally from? Uh, so I was born and raised in Florida. Okay. Um, Where about? Uh, Cocoa Beach. Okay. Yeah. Um, so grew up there, have one older brother, um, just spent my entire childhood, um, really just playing sports and being on the outside. Um, I was kind of a, kind of a wild child. So my parents, their best way of dealing with me, like, Hey, we just got to get this guy involved in as many sports and, uh, things as possible. So grew up surfing, playing soccer, football, baseball, basketball, just anything my parents could do to keep me from, uh, driving them crazy. Yeah. So, and, um, what was it that caused you to go in the military? I mean, is that something that you had a lot of family that was involved in or? No, I'm the first person in my immediate family to join the military. Um, my mom first brought it up like 10th grade in high school. She was just kind of like, you know, you're wild. You need some discipline, <laughs> some structure in your life. So they actually made me take the ASFAB in 10th grade. Um, they wanted me to join the Air Force, but I had no intention of going. I graduated high school tried college for about a semester and it just it wasn't my thing got into some trouble in florida i was like i need to leave you know my parents moved up to uh chattanooga so i followed them up there eventually but just working a job had no purpose didn't feel like i was accomplishing anything this is 2004 2005 um and iraq was really starting to take off and i used to actually cut out news articles from these events that were happening in iraq you know and i was just like man i I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I, I don't want to work this dead end job, you know? So I was like, well, I'll give the military a shot. I'll go for four years, but I, I'm not going to go to the air force or anything else. So I went to recruiter, um, based on my scores, you know, the recruiter's like, Hey, you can, you qualify for any job. Your GT scores, you know, super high. I recommend you go to like satellite communications or something. And I said, no, I want the infantry. And he was like, dude, like, what are, you, <laughs> what are you doing? He's like, you can do anything and set yourself up after four years. I said, no, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it. I want the experience. So I can tell you from being a former recruiter that that's very rare. Mm-hmm. So I know I've got a slam dunk if I send you downrange to the MEPS and you, you're you wanting to go infantry because mm-hmm. nine times out of ten needs the Army. Infantry is going to be on the list. Mm-hmm. So the fact that a guy's talking you out of it yeah. is a bit different. Yeah, he, he was just – because 
he was uh, in communications of some sort. And he oh, was like, you know, okay, gotcha. Do four years, six years, get out. You make six figures. You really set yourself up. And I oh, was good like, for him. Yeah, he yeah. was trying to do what I feel is the right thing. I was like, no, if I want to do this, I want to do this right. I really want to experience what I've been seeing and reading about all these other people going through. I want to feel like I've contributed in some way. Yeah. Um, and they were also offering $40,000 for four years. Oh. So I was like, okay, great. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, so went in with no real plan. I figured everybody in the Army was just going to be a bunch of squares, and I was going to be miserable. But I wanted that experience, and I wanted something different. So you so, went down to Benning, go to OSIT. Yep, went through all that. Um, first duty station was Fort Campbell. Um, got assigned there. Uh, 2006, showed up, and within seven months, headed out to Iraq. Um, that was my first deployment. It was a 15 month deployment. Um, just a young, <clears throat> I think I left when I was 20. Um, and did 15 months over there. Thank God I wasn't like married, had kids. Cause I don't know how the dudes did it. Being gone for Were you months. on that, um, where they ended up extending everybody? You saying 15 months. <clears throat> that happened right before our deployment. So okay. up until that point, they were just 12 months and then they started the extension. I think it was like right during the Iraq surge was like 2006, yeah. 2007. Um, so we knew going into it that it was 15 months. Oh, that so, sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, that was a long trip. But like I said, I was just a young 20-year-old kid. I didn't know anything different. So yeah. I was like, well, I'll just take it day by day, I guess. What know? was that deployment like for you? It actually, in comparison to the other ones, it wasn't that bad. It was long. We were super busy, you know, most days going out two, three times. Um, all urban environments, though. So that was... Everything was new to me. It was my first trip. Didn't know anything. Um, but thankfully, I had a really good platoon sergeant, and uh, he forced me to sleep in the bunk above him. He, um, but I learned I learned a lot from him. He taught me a lot um, of things at his level, which I felt as I grew up and I grew in rank, it really, I remember a lot of the lessons that he taught oh, me. Oh, I so, bet. Um, it, it was a good experience, but... Um, it was pretty light compared to the other trips, yeah. to my Afghan trips. I remember, uh, so our team leaders at the time, they just did, I think it was like a 04 trip to Iraq, and uh, they had a real bad trip, you know? So when they found out we were essentially going back to the same area, that like Sunni Triangle area, yeah. Um, you know, they were all, I could tell like they were visibly nervous. So I was like, man, I don't know what I got myself into, but thankfully it wasn't uh, a particularly rough trip, so. yeah. Yeah. So you come back, you end up going to air assault school because you're, you were there? Um, yeah, I did. I I think it was after that Iraq trip. I went to uh, air assault school, a couple other things. Ended up picking my E-5 up right before my 2010 Afghan trip, still with the 101st. Okay. Um, went to southern Afghanistan out in like the western end of uh, Kandahar district. And that was a particularly rough trip yeah that i was gonna say um that trip so in my platoon uh we ended up having four of our guys get killed on that trip the platoon sergeant two squad leaders um and then one of my joes one of the squad leaders sean him and i were very close you know always worked out together eight um we always talked about you know relationship issues and what was going on back home so that one uh that one was particularly rough especially you know, you're seeing there, watching it, you're working on them, um, especially a close friend. So that one, that was a particularly rough trip. There was a lot of growing up that I had to do on that trip. You know, my first squad leader, 
we got ambushed. He ended up getting shot through the shoulder, hit him in the heart. So I had to take over a squad leader duties for a little bit. New squad leader comes in. I moved to another squad, to Sean's squad. I was like, oh, perfect. I'm with my with my boy, you know. A couple months later, um, him and one of the guys in my team um, got killed. Um, so, again, I had to take over temporary squad leader for a little bit. New one comes in. So it was, you know, platoon sergeant gets killed, and then the squad leader step up. So it was, it was just, you know, it was a real messy trip. Um, but, you know, just kind of how to keep pushing through it unfortunately because you still have a deployment to finish so you can't really linger or work through a lot of those things um so yeah i mean that was thankfully it was only a 12-month trip but that was a it was a particularly rough trip yeah when he came back from that how long did it take you to kind of decompress from oh man this is something i've been forced to like look at a lot um we came back, the entire platoon pretty much got blanketed with um, Zoloft, the Ambien. You know, they they were like, oh, this was your platoon, and they just kind of dumped it out. So I got home from that trip. I got married within a month. Um, wow. And I ended up PCS into Hawaii. During that time, when I got back to Campbell and PCS in Hawaii, it was particularly difficult. There were a lot of there were a lot of issues with, you know, not really handling things very well, a lot of arguments with the person I was marrying and just, you know, um, drinking a lot, all those kind of things. So I get to Hawaii and my wife at the time was like, hey, you need to you really need to talk to somebody and figure something out. So I actually went out and talked to mental health out in Hawaii, um, got my medication kind of dialed in and um started seeing somebody once a week, you know, which, which helped. But what really helped the most is when I got to Hawaii, I met a group of friends that I was working with. And every weekend it was like, hey, we're going out spearfishing or regular fishing or surfing or we're always doing things where all the families were together. And mm-hmm. that was, I ended up stopped going to mental health because I was getting more from hanging out with my buddies and we would be out fishing, drinking some beers and they had all been through similar circumstances or kind of new. So that feeling of being in a comfortable surrounding with people, I felt comfortable talking to and being able to talk about those experiences and hear their experiences or hear how they have dealt with it did way more for me than sitting down with a, a therapist or psychiatrist, you know, somebody that was, it's their job. Um, so that did a lot for me. And then I kind of leveled out and got things back on track in Hawaii. I PCS there because I knew I needed to break. I was burnt after that 2010 trip. Um, I knew I needed to break, so chose to go out to Hawaii to give myself a couple years off, focus on the family um, and everything like that. That was a lot of stress in a short amount of time frame. I mean, you come back from your deployment, you are dealing with the aftermath of that or at least trying to come to grips with everything that you just went through and experienced. You get married. And you have a PCS. I mean, one of those events is stressful enough. Yeah. Two, that, that's seriously stressful. Three, wow. And I mean, we're not even talking about just a PCS in terms of moving to a new environment, which most people would say is a stress period, you know, stressful period anyway. But you're going to a new unit. You don't know anybody there. Another stress doing perhaps maybe even a different job or taking over a team, you know, or a squad, another level of stress. 
you had like 10 levels here. Yeah, and then especially with Hawaii being so far out, yeah. um, my family is all in the southeast, and uh, my wife at the time, her family is, uh, lives in Georgia. So it was for both of us to get transported almost to the other side of the world with no support system and a one-and-a-half-year-old at the time. You know, it was just she took on a lot of that stress, you know. Um, so that was just a lot to deal with. Um, but I, I think it was the right move because we were able to go out there and kind of start our own family without, you know, my parents or her parents yeah. being in the mix. And then it, you know, gave us a place to really kind of settle down and build things for ourselves. Yeah, it allowed so, you guys really to concentrate a whole lot on each other. Mm-hmm. But at the same time frame, I mean, it sounded like the guys around you was probably the best thing that ever happened to you um, at that time period. You know, I mean, to be able, like you said, to sit down and share some of those things. And I know that we hear that a lot. Yeah, that's like a, a crucial component is finding your community. Did, now, did that happen organically or was that like at the suggestion of your the therapist you were seeing? Or it, No, so that happened organically. Um, I showed up in process to that battalion and the sergeant major and first sergeant kind of like courted me in HHC. Um, at the time, I was probably the only dude in that battalion, maybe one of five or six that had been to Afghanistan yet. Yeah. That unit has only, they were only in Iraq, I think once before I showed up. So they were like, they knew I was fresh off the boat from Afghanistan from the 101st. So like, Hey, we're going to put you in the recon platoon and kind of um, share those experiences you learn in Afghanistan. Cause I think we had an Afghan trip on the books for about a year out, you know, I was like, Oh, great. Yeah. Just go back. But um, so they wanted that experience in the re- recon platoon. I said, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, go over there, do what I can. Um, so then the other guys that were already in the recon platoon were a lot of guys that were like me, you know, guys that um, didn't just want to do the bare minimum, get behind the line squad. They wanted all the schools. They wanted to be the best they could be. So there was a natural mesh. I know, I think I was there for like two days and there was a flag football game and they were like, Hey man, come on out. And that was really what just, you know, tied everything together. So yeah, uh, it was very organic. Yeah. That happens a lot. Like I think you strive to do more and you end up with peers that are like-minded. That was my experience too. Yeah. Well, I mean, getting in that type of situation, I mean, the um, sports and everything is just another way for you to build camaraderie and teamwork and stuff. But that was a very strong leadership team to recognize those things. The pros of you having a combat experience that they could really lean on and help the troops that are about ready to get prepared mentally, you know, and um, in terms of their MOS skill Mm -hmm. is one thing but also probably realizing that the best thing that you can do is to talk about it and get it out there having just returned as well. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened is we kind of started looking at changing some of our TTPs and I was um, giving the guys a lot of counter ID classes from what I'd seen uh, in the Southern Afghanistan region just because my team, when I was in Afghanistan, we were doing all the clearance ourselves, you know, uh, mm-hmm. dismounted. So one of my guys had the, I think it was like the PSS-14 or whatever, mine detector, and I'm right there on his shoulder, and we're clearing the route for the rest of our platoon. So there was a lot of, we didn't have EOD with us. We didn't have, so it was a lot of trial and error, uh, unfortunately. Wow. And there was a lot of hard lessons we learned uh, through bloodshed, you know, and 
So we kind of revamped our TTPs and we started looking at um, how we could change things to set ourselves up as best we could for this upcoming trip. Was your leadership team from any of those guys from 75th? I know a lot of guys from Ranger Regiment end up going over there. There seems to be a lot of uh, connection there. Not um, not who I was with. Uh, the platoon around the time was an 82nd guy. He grew up in the 82nd. So there was that same sure. kind of yeah. mentality. Um and him and I became really close. Um, so it was great having that trust from him and then that leeway to kind of be like, hey, we were both had the same idea, like this is what we need to do to set ourselves up um, and to kind of really build ourselves to where we need to be. So what made you take the next leap then and go, you know, put in a packet or to go to um, SFAS? Well, I got out of Hawaii and I wanted a break. I needed a break after being there for a year. I quickly realized I, I can't just sit still. I, you know, this the unit was good, but everybody out there was just very relaxed. And so, uh, case in point, when I was in the 101st, there were dudes that would literally re-enlist for four years just to go to Arslik, mm-hmm. uh, the reconnaissance surveillance leaders course, uh, and still wouldn't get it. I get to Hawaii and. I think I was there for like a month and we're having like a NCO meeting and they're like, Hey, we got a slot for Arsic coming up. Who wants to go? And I look around the room to give everybody else like first dibs because I'm the new guy. Yeah. And everybody's just kind of like looking off. And I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. So I was like, Hey, I will go. I'll go to Arsic. They're like, all right, man. I look on ATARS. Uh, I see that there's a sniper school class starting three days after Arsic graduation. So I oh. said, Hey, I'm going to take my ghillie, my drag bag. I'm going to try and walk on if I can. They're like, yeah, man, if you want to. So, I went out there, knocked out Arslick, knocked out Sniper School, and kind of got that fire back in me. You know, it was like, man, I. It's almost I could just breeze through these things or be at the unit and not feel like I'm putting in a lot of effort, but still kind of be like outperforming um, a majority of my peers. And I was like, man, I just I don't think this is where I top out at. Um, and to be honest, I I still had a lot of animosity and anger for that 2010 trip and i remember we worked with a a third group oda for like two days and those guys were just getting it and i was like you know what if i want to go back to afghanistan i want to be with the guys that are getting it and the guys that have everything and they um they seem to be able to do what made sense and dealing with regular army infantry uh lieutenants that's not always the case so i was very frustrated so i was like you know what i need to I need to take my shot at selection and see what happens. Um, One of my close friends and I started training up. We had great recruiters uh, in Hawaii, SF recruiters. Uh, Worked out with them every morning for like five or six months leading up to it. And then we were like, hey man, it's now or never. Let's just give it a shot. So I went to selection March of 2013 um, and got picked up. Me and my buddy both got picked up. So. Oh, nice. After that, same class. Yep, same class. After that, it was like the floodgates open because I think like eight or 10 other guys from the recce platoon ended up going within the next year, year and a half. You know, it was like once they see, once they saw that like selection isn't impossible and it's not this this thing that nobody ever accomplishes, then it's like, oh, well, I'm going to give it a shot. And then uh, I think a majority of those dudes got picked up as well. So, um, and that was my struggle with being the recce platoon there. So, Actually, two weeks before I went to selection, I I kept that quiet. I knew that if my uh, leadership, like, 
the Titan Sergeant Major Commander found out I was going to selection, they would have yanked me. At the time I was running the battalion sniper section, they would have yanked me and put me down the line, mm. which is exactly what happened. I got berated by the battalion sergeant major uh, for being disloyal and no way. Yeah. He, he was like, you know, we spent all this money sending you these schools and all these things and you're just going to leave the unit. I said, well, that's kind of the point of being an NCL and recce platoon is yeah. you go to the schools, you bring back knowledge, you, you train the younger guys up and then you, you leave, you either go back to the line units and spread the wealth and allow guys from the line to try out, to come to the recce platoon and get those schools and experience or you go on and do bigger, better things, whether that's go to selection or take the long walk or, or do whatever, that's, you're not supposed to stay stagnant in the record platoon. You no, know? not just that. You're not supposed to just be in his unit to the day you die. Right. I mean, you, you know, or you retire or whatever. I mean, the whole idea is that you continue growing within the military. So the, the fact that this guy felt like, I mean, he was probably PCSing six months later himself. You know, so why not wish the best for you and see you in another life and another part of the, the military? Because we bump into each other so often. Yeah. You know, it ends up being a small army. Yeah. I, well, and how long are you realistically going to stay at a unit anyway? That's what I mean. About two years, maybe a little more. Yeah. Right? So I, he wanted you to. I had been there because you didn't give him an extra couple months. Right. I was already there for a year and a half at that point when I went to selection. So I'm like. You were only going to get maybe another year and a half out of me. You know, what it send you to the sergeant a, majors. That's like, a long time to be in a recce platoon. Right. Yeah. Like a really long time. Right. I don't think people realize that. It doesn't sound like that much, but two, three years in a recce platoon, it's not great for your career. No. Which I get the feeling you don't care as much about that, mm-hmm. but it's not good for your experience. And you can become very two dimensional. Well, that's how that platoon was kind of set up when I showed up. There's a lot of guys were stagnant there for two or three years, you know. And, um, so once I was there and kind of got the lay of the land and had more of a voice in things, you know, I was like, hey, when's the last time we did tryouts? And they're like, well, tryouts for what? Well, where are we getting these new guys at? You know, where are we, how are we shuffling new dudes in and where are we pushing new guys out at? So eventually got the okay to run um, – I don't know, like a little week-long selection program, whatever. Mm-hmm. Basically went through other line units, like E4s and below, and grabbed dudes' GT scores that were already high enough to go to selection. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this right and get guys that already had over a 110 because the point is come in, get schools, get experience, and then you need to be looking at selection. You need to be looking at Ranger Regiment. You need, you need to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, PT tests, uh, all these other physical events and, like, um, mental things, but – it was good. We got a lot of great guys, in, and th- a majority of those guys that came in ended up following us to selection, like I said, about six months, a year later, which is exactly the point. But it was just – it was very stagnant out in Hawaii, and that's why I, I knew I had to leave. So, mm. And I also hoped I was going to run into that sergeant major down the road <laughs> as a GV and just kind of – Well, yeah, And but. you say, you know, like those guys come to the recce platoon and go to 75th or go to selection, but also like the guys that don't, you're going back and – now you know camouflage techniques and patrolling techniques and things like that that you were, you're just not going to get unless you go to somebody that's small unit focused. Right. So, you know, I, I want to make that point as well. Like, yeah, you can go and get the cool guy hat, but going back to the line and taking that knowledge with you, it's huge, invaluable. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know, but everything worked out. Um, How how'd your wife? You're still married at this time, friend? Uh, yeah, still married. So we actually had our second kid. Uh, it was like three months before I went to selection. So oh. she was she was pregnant in this whole workup. 
and she was she was great about it. She said, "Hey, give me three months. Let's, you know, get the new kids settled and on a sleep schedule, and then go to selection." Because she obviously wanted me to succeed, not only because she knew it's what I wanted to do, but that also brought us back to the East Coast, closer to her family. So she was all about it. Um, so it was like three months after my second kid was born, went to selection, got picked up, came back, said, "Hey, great news! You know, going back to the East Coast." So she was stoked. Um, PCS within a couple months after getting back. Well, yeah. that's good that it was a quick turnaround. Oh yeah, cause <laughs> I, I was ready. I was ready to get out. Um, so got out to North Carolina, hit airborne school en route to North Carolina because I hadn't been to airborne school since. So yes. I was, I was an E6 at the time when I went to selection, and then E6 going through airborne school. So that was a that was a trip. You yeah. know, when I went through, I was uh, E7, and they made me a platoon sergeant. Yep. Of course, in airborne school, platoons are huge. Yep. <laughs> you know, hundred they're a company basically. Um, so it was a different experience too because you know all the black hats knew you were a senior NCO. You know, you're not just an E5 or E4 or E3 or whatever. Yeah. A little bit different. That's exactly what happened. The other, you know, the black hats were E6s and they found out I had already been selected on the way to Q course. So they were very friendly and yeah. we were bullshit on the side, but they did the same thing. They were like, hey, you're going to be like the student, like platoon sergeant, whatever. And there was times where the students are doing normal private student stuff and they yeah. were like, hey man, like you need to handle this. Well, I'm coming fresh off the line, you know, fresh E6. So, um, just kind of had some some sessions, you know, during airborne school. And it was funny because that ended up following me to first group. Um, one of the guys that was a student going through airborne school when I went there ended up getting put on a team in my company. And he showed up. I didn't recognize him, didn't remember him, whatever. But so he, he was, went through selection as well. He went through airborne after basic and then went to Sopsy in the selection, you know, all that okay. stuff. So he was behind. Oh, he was me. an 18. Yeah. He, oh, was, okay. he was a, he was a young guy. He was behind me by a while through the Q course, but um, ended up showing up at the same company at first group. And he was like, yeah, dude, Ryan was a dick in airborne school. Like, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it just, it all caught up to me. I'm like, man, I'm sorry, dude. You know, I apologize. <laughs> but uh, so you end up uh, going to airborne school in route when you get to Bragg and, and you get to Camp McCall. Um, you were probably still one of the senior guys, weren't you? Yeah, there was a there was a decent group of uh, fives and sixes, and then a couple sevens. We actually had a couple oh, sevens. Uh, damn. Yeah, there was a, a two sevens. One of them was from regiment. Um, there was another five there from regiment, and then a lot of fives and sixes from like 101st, 82nd, kind of normal yeah. units that you would expect to see. Um, so it was great, and we were all kind of close going through. So it was it was very. I had a lot of fun going through the Q course, to be honest. Um, had a good group of dudes in my class that we all progressed through the different phases together. So it was good. What language did you end up in? I got Chinese. So <clears throat> when I when I went to selection, at the end of selection, you know, you have your wish list for languages and groups. Um, and at the end, they told you your proposed language and group. So I wanted seventh group. Before I even went to selection, I already spoke Dari. So they're like, hey, perfect. You'll just retest in Dari. Uh, they had just moved language into the Q course. So they're like, hey, you'll retest Dari at the end, head down to seventh group. It's like, perfect. You know, I want to get back to Florida. My uh, wife at the time was from Florida as well. So mm -hmm. we both wanted to get back. Um, so went through the entire Q course, no hiccups. Um, luckily, didn't have to recycle anything. Get to the end at language. They're calling off names. Um, and they call off my last name, but like a captain of my last name for Chinese. And I was like, that's kind of weird. I don't have a, 
a very popular last name, you know. I didn't know there was another, there's like a captain here. So I'm looking around very confused. They keep calling, nobody's standing up. And I was like, no, it's not me. Like, I yeah. already speak no, Dari. No. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was me. They got the rank wrong. I, I tried to fight it for a week. You know, I said, hey, I already speak Dari. First group is like the last on my list. I don't want to go to Washington. Yeah. Um, they were like, yeah, but your D lab first group needs bravos that speak Chinese and you're like the only bravo in this class that can do Chinese and we're not offering Dari this class so you can either take it or you can quit the Q course I'm like dude I'm already at the end you know what I mean you know I'm not going to quit so yep six months Chinese and then headed to first group um yeah man. Yeah. I guess that's the good and bad thing about testing. Everybody always wants to test out well on everything. Right. But yet in this situation, it, it didn't help you because I know guys who didn't test out well, they got seventh grade. Yeah. Oh, that's a couple of my buddies yeah. kind of flunked the D lab on purpose. Yeah. They got seventh grade, you know, it's like, <laughs> man, maybe they were smarter than me, you know? So if you listen to this podcast, <laughs> yeah. but it, again, it was a, it was a blessing in disguise. Um, so PCS out to first group. Um, one of the captains I went through Sage with did language at the beginning of the Q course. So he left Sage, heads straight out to first group, takes over a team. Meanwhile, I do six months of language. Well, when he finds out that I'm now coming to first group, um, towards the end, I'm getting ready to graduate. He said, hey, the team needs a Bravo. You want to come straight to a team? I was, yeah, that's a huge opportunity. You know, usually guys got to sit on the B team for a couple months. Um, so we show up, go straight to a team. It's like, oh, this is perfect, you know. Um, and my best friend that I met in selection went through the entire key course together. We ended up getting put on the same ODA. So it was uh, like, yeah, it, cool. was, it was great. So um, it that's, was a, that's great to be able to lean on somebody like that. Right. I was going to ask you, I was waiting to see, okay, did your buddy make it, you know? Uh, so my buddy from Hawaii did make it. He ended up recycling uh, a part in the Bravo course, which I still talk shit to this day about. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he made it, and then he ended up going to third group. So okay. he stayed at Bragg. Yeah, that kind of sucks then. Yeah. At least you don't have to really go anywhere for schools. You know, that's, yeah. I guess, the everything's right there. grace for third yeah. group. But Yeah. So you head out to first group, and as a Bravo going directly onto an ODA, how was that? How did the, how did the team treat you as a new guy? Um, so it was different, you know, not showing up as x-ray, um, showing up as a senior six with a couple of deployments already under my belt. Some mm -hmm. of the juniors on that team had only done one six month trip. So there's that awkward between them that, yeah, they've been on ODA for a couple of years, but only had six months in country. And then I've never been on ODA, but you know, at this point I'm already, I don't know, eight or nine years in with uh, 28, 30 months of, you know, deployment under my belt. So there was that weird dynamic to figure out. But luckily, my senior, very cool dude, get along great, said, hey, this isn't a pissing contest. You know, he knew things about the SF world that I was very new to. Yeah. And I had experience in the regular Army that could benefit us as well. So we were a team and there was no competition. Um, but, you know, there was a couple times where I stepped on my toes and feeling like, I'm already kind of a part of the team being there for a month and just team starts like, no, it's not how it works. You know, <laughs> go take the trash out. I was like, okay, Roger. Right. So it was a, it was a good, uh, humbling learning environment, but had it relatively easy because I wasn't an x-ray. So yeah. once the guys kind of understood that I wasn't a piece of shit and we could work together, then 
know, things went on. How was the family adjusting at this time frame, knowing that you're not going to get, you know, this either seventh group or even third group in North Carolina, which would have been at least a little bit closer. Yeah. Um, she was not thrilled yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, but luckily, like I said, that my buddy that went through the whole course together and we got put on the same team together, uh, his wife at the time, and my wife were super close friends. So they had a little bit of a support network mm -hmm. ended up. We both loved Washington. Like there's, it's just a beautiful place to live. Um, so things were great, but of course you get to a team, you hit the ground running and then just started being gone all the time. Yeah. So, um, but I think that was, we both expected that, but it's different when you're actually in it and in the reality and you're gone more than you are home. So how much in the rotations of your future, you know, deployments did the 2010 trip really affect you going forward? You know, as and, and did did other things happen or did you kind of shut yourself down? I know a lot of guys end up really, you know, we, we try to talk about not making friends or associating ourselves too closely because when you do get close. Um, so I'm just kind of curious if you just kind of shut yourself down and built a wall. I don't feel that I did with friends or at work. I know my... Uh, now ex-wife would 100% say that I shut myself off emotionally. Um, and now looking back, I could agree that I was uh, very emotionally closed off. Even with my kids, like it was very difficult for me to find enjoyment like playing with them. I couldn't just be happy playing with them. You know, it was always like serious or, or whatever. So that relationship definitely struggled a lot. But at, at work and with buddies, there was no, mm. it was, very easy to make friends, get along with people. I didn't build a wall in that aspect. Um, and then I I have never really had uh, like nightmares about things that have happened or anything like that. So I felt very fortunate leaving that Afghan trip. I was like, man, I'm, I'm kind of getting out all right. You know, I, a lot of dudes from that trip, they ended up uh, either getting med boarded out um, two guys killed themselves uh everybody struggled everybody got divorced got out like everybody was struggling but here i am like i felt i had a successful marriage and i and now a green beret i was like man i i really got lucky you know um but i i just didn't see how it was affecting me in ways that aren't typically broadcasted you know i wasn't yeah. having nightmares i wasn't having like panic attacks or any of those things that you really hear about so i was like well i'm, I'm good you know um, so at one point, didn't you decide like, maybe I'm not good? Cause I hear this a lot. Yeah. Like, guys are like, yeah, I'm great. I'm doing awesome. And then they get a little bit older or something happens and they're like, I've not been okay for a very long time. And that's, that was my experience. Yeah. I, you know, I heard it a lot from the person I was married to at the time, you know, about being just very emotionally shut off like a robot. Um, not, I don't know what's hard, but so hearing that from her, um, just kind of saying like, you know, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't quite normal. And, you know, the fact that you were thinking that is a good sign. Yeah. Because I mean, you were, that means you were really trying to understand yourself as to, okay, am I part of the problem? Typically guys automatically assume I'm not the issue here. Right. No, I, it started to become apparent to me, you know, and we had a lot of hard conversations. She was like, you know, you were just a completely different person after that 2010 trip. Like you, you were just not the same. Like, I can't remember 
the last time seeing you were like truly happy. Like before that trip, you were just a very happy-go-lucky person. And, you know, now you're just always like irritated or upset. And, you know, I was just like, well, maybe it is me, but it's probably not me. It's, you know, more you. I was still young at the time, maybe 26, 27. Um, so that was something that started to grow in the back of my mind. But I remember we were <clears throat> we were in a Southeast Asia country doing a, a, tra um, a training exercise with a, a unit over there, and they put us through this jungle counter IED lane, you know, and I'd never had any of these weird reactions to any sort of training events, but we're doing this counter ID lane. I was like, hey, I'll be point man. Like, I feel confident in this. And uh, we thought it was going to be like, you know, stuff hooked up to like a little whistle device or something that you know american units normally use well they set up a tripwire and then six or seven feet off the path they had this little ball of deck cord so i hit the tripwire and it was like an actual like little explosion you know and i was like oh man that freaked me out you know i was like oh this has been the first time been back in this situation so yeah that's when i kind of knew okay there are lingering things that are happening but um again i'm not having nightmares or not having panic attacks so i don't any like headaches or anything like that? Because I'm curious with, um, you know, traumatic brain injury too, just with the concussions and stuff that, did you experience any, um, anything that now looking back on it may go, damn, I didn't think about that. My, my sleep has been pretty jacked up since then. And yeah. my short term memory is just gone there. That same trip, uh, was also blown up twice. Um, one of the times it was severe enough to get, met it back to the roll three at calf. Um, hmm. So got my bell rung a couple times, but I, I mean, also growing up, I had probably had four or five concussions before I even joined the military, you know? So yeah, the protocol back then wasn't as nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's like suck it up and get back out that's, there. Yeah. It's pretty much what it was. Yeah. So um, probably got some, some stuff loose up there, you know, getting banged around a sure. lot, but yeah, I, the more, <clears throat> so that, that marriage ended up, you know, dissolving. We go our separate ways. But a lot of the things that she had said kind of stuck with me. And that's what really started me being very introspective and looking at things like, yeah, you know, since that trip, yeah, I'm very irritable, angry all the time and sleeping like shit. So I, you know, start looking at these things. But I'm a green brain now. I've got to push forward and just focus on work. So. I'm guessing you were doing well at work. Yeah. Work, yeah. work was going very well which again i was like oh then this must not be an issue the relationship problems like okay whatever yeah but work's going great knocking out schools and that, that's why i asked because yeah. i think a lot of guys they use that as a metric and they're like i'm knocking out these schools i'm getting promoted on time i'm excelling at these in these areas and that's not really a good metric i don't think because you can it it is a terrible metric because i was so focused on performance at work and getting schools and all these things that I poured all my effort into work and no effort at home. And I was completely imbalanced. And, um, you know, the results, what, you know, leading to a divorce, dysfunctional home life. Um, so that's the main thing I try to tell a lot of, a lot of younger guys now and a lot of the, like juniors on my last team is like, Hey man, by all means, chase schools, do these great things, but the amount of effort you pour into work, you have to put in the same amount, if not more, in your home life. Because I had a great sergeant major uh, at first group, and he was like, hey, when you retire, nobody cares. None of this matters. You know, you could knock out all these schools and deployments and medals. You retire at 20 years, they're going to already have somebody in your spot 
nobody's going to care. The only people that are going to be there are the ki- the people that you took time to nurture along the way, like your family. You know, so if mm-hmm. you lose that along the way for all these shiny objects in schools, you're going to get out and you're going to have nothing. Um, it's kind of a short sighted strategy. Yeah, it's like when you're doing PT, if you only work and you never rest. Right. You know, I mean, it's easy to do though. I mean, your life's on the line. Your buddy's life is on the line. Why shouldn't you pour all your effort into that? But there's a yeah something else you got to be doing as well. Right. Yeah. Putting in that work at home and be like, you know, I need to carve out time for date nights or time with the kids. And I was just getting home exhausted. I'm like, no, nah, man. I, well, and also like you know, if you your relationship is struggling mainly because maybe she sees something that is different than what it was before. You're looking at the situation of, well, I've done my checks and balances. Everything seems to be good. I've, you know, ticked all the boxes here. So it's not me maybe, but maybe it's just, we've grown apart. We're just different, that type of thing. And I'm focusing on the work and, and, and it's a great advice for a lot of young guys that, you know, um, I think it's so important for them to spend that quality time to really build upon that relationship because that's the hard part, yeah. right? The easy part is going back to the job and doing everything on a daily basis. You've got to work over here. And over here, a lot of guys don't want to put that effort and that time and that that work. And that ends up being, you know, the relationship suffers and a lot of people end up going into divorces, not just once, but twice, yeah. three times. Yeah. Can't be a good Green Beret without at least one divorce. That's <laughs> right. what I was told. So Right. Uh, yeah. But that, that caused me to take a look at everything. You know, like now I'm no longer living with my kids every day. That was a that was a huge struggle. They moved back to Georgia. Okay. Um, and I was like, man, you know, like what am I doing? Like what is <clears throat> what is all this really worth? Still wasn't ready to accept any fault of my own or really look into it. So I was like, I'm just going to bury my head down even further and just push harder into work, you know, so then just start knocking out trips and schools even harder because now I'm like, well, my kids aren't here. So I have to fill my time with work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's basically what happened. So after that time period, when did you leave first group? Cause um, that's recently too. Yeah. So after that, that was, uh, 2016 or 17 we do a six-month afghan trip very very good trip um did a lot of work exactly what i thought sf was going to be um so we did a lot of work came home very quick turnaround did another afghan trip um particularly frustrating trip just with the political climate but then also uh dustin our our senior echo uh was killed on that trip so it was like, okay, you know, here, here, we, here go. we go again. But this was different because a majority of the other guys on the team were junior to me. This was only like their second deployment. They had never experienced something like this, especially the Deltas. You know, one of the Deltas was my best friend on the team. Um, so getting back from that operation, I felt a different burden, not only the burden of losing a friend, losing a teammate, but now I feel this burden of these guys have never been through this before and I have. So now whether they actually were or not, I felt like they were watching me and seeing like how you dealt with it. How, what's the next step forward, right? When is it socially acceptable to start working out again or to laugh or anything like that? So I, I felt like this burden and trying to give guys advice, um, doing so, 
didn't allow me to do what I needed to do, which was to to process that, to really feel it with no judgment or no extra burden on my plate. Um, so that that was in the beginning of the trip too, which was hard. And I told those dudes, you know, was, whether we like it or not, we still have a job to do. We still have to complete this deployment. We still have multiple operations to go on. So in some aspect, you have to kind of bury this and we have to get back to work, but you need to work on this in your own time because if you, like I found out the hard way, if you just bury it, it's gonna become like calcified. And then when you get home five months later, it's gonna be incredibly difficult to pull that back up and break through that shell to process it. So I was like, yeah. don't do that. But you almost have to at a point because we still have five months left of the trip. Um, rest of the trip went off uh, decently as far as work uh, went had some issues going on back home as well. Um, so it was just like one thing after another, compounding, compounding. And then before I knew it, um, my close friend that was a Delta, you know, walking back from midnight chow and he's just like, he stops me. He's like, hey, dude, something's wrong. Something's going on. You need to talk to me, you know? Um, so we just had a real big heart to heart and I knew I was like, hey, this is, I'm going down a path that I already, recognized from before and I need to do something. So you about did it. recognize it then? Yeah. At that point. Okay. I needed a shove from my buddy, you know, but I, I knew things were going downhill. So got back on some meds, started doing some other things that I'd never tried before. Got in meditation, um, some yoga, journaling, reading, but things you know, like I always tell people medication is only a band aid. Mm -hmm. What it did for me is it leveled the playing field and evened out my emotional swings to allow me then to put in the hard work that I know I needed to do. I need to process things. I need to stimulate my mind in a constructive way. I need to learn different behaviors and not just fall back into the rut. So, um, yeah, started down that path and then got home from that deployment. Um, I volunteered to come to SWIC. I knew towards the end of that deployment and especially coming home that, okay, I'm, I'm feeling burnt again, you know, a lot of frustration, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of resentment. So I volunteered to come to SWIC. Um, and then I got to Fort Bragg in August of this year. So how has this transition been for you? It's been, it's been pretty good. I knew people here prior to coming here. So mm -hmm. that made the transition easier. Um, being closer to my kids has obviously helped a great deal. Oh, I, I bet. see them as much as I want, whenever I want. Um, but already knowing people here made it easier. So I already kind of had friends here or a support network to kind of help that transition and um, settling into the, the SWIC life. It's very slow and very different. Than I was going to say, so yeah. how, how has that affected you too? Because one of the things that you found you know, when you were in Hawaii was that having that slow life was not what you wanted at that time frame. Now you fast forward eight years later or so. How is it now in your adjustment period and your time in your life? Um, to be determined. Still yeah. still going through it. There's been times where I've uh, had some pretty big struggles here because I'm not doing the things that I know I needed to do. You know, I, I stopped meditating every day and reading and um, engaging in those outside activities that brought me actual happiness and purpose, fulfillment, whatever. Um, so I'm in the process of getting back on track, um, but it is a lot slower. So I've had to find things to keep me occupied 
um, whether that's with you know the gorilla group or um, so my girlfriend owns a horse ranch and has like 24 horses out there so I've found that's been huge for me is to get out there and I'm helping out around the hand around the ranch or, or working with these horses and that's done a lot for me you know teaching me a lot of patience or a lot mm-hmm. of things but it's filling my time with um, something that I feel I have a purpose but it's also work you know like rebuilding fences or throwing hay or you know trying to break this wild mustang right now it's it's been great. So you're speaking Paul's language. Here. Yeah. So yeah. maybe Paul, you can tell a little bit about your background and as uh, far as like um, everybody, of course, that listens knows that you came from the regiment. But I'm talking about as far as since you've been out, a lot, a lot of the work that you've been doing with horses. Um, yeah, I mean that's kind of been my purpose in life. I have to yeah. do other things, you know, because mm-hmm. you got to be in the right situation to make money on horses. But um, it just like you said, I, I have to work. I have to have a purpose. I have to have a mission. And I have to be doing something for myself. And I find that being around horses, it's very fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Horses need people. Yeah. Or they just, there's no real place for them in the world anymore. And so that's very fulfilling. And then, like you said, I like therapeutic riding centers because, yeah, you're just mending a fence or you're fixing a piece of equipment or whatever you're doing. But that's going to allow somebody else to get the alternative therapy that they need or you know, bring a family closer together or, you know, there's just so much you can get out of that. So. Horse doesn't back talk you. Doesn't, uh, they just need you. They know they you to, do. They'll, oh, they yeah. do. Well, yeah. I mean, they'll kick you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There's a lot of things horses will do to back talk. You. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, it's pretty funny. I have learned the hard way that uh, a horse can be just as stubborn as I am. Um, so she had this, this wild Mustang and she rescued from this place and she's like, Hey, she needs to be broken in and you know she needs to learn so i think this would be a great project for you and i'm like yeah of course i'll break a wild mustang you know yeah this thing has taught me so much especially patience you know because i want this horse to do something and she's just not having it and i've had to learn a lot from my girlfriend who's grown up doing this she's like hey you're you're going about this all wrong and of course i would resist and be stubborn like no i know what i'm doing you know i have no idea what i'm doing (laughs) um and she's like you know you you can't just force something to do what you want you have to like earn its trust and you have to earn its love over time and like by repeatedly showing this horse that you know you you care about all these things so it has been a very frustrating but rewarding thing um so i enjoy the challenge now but i still get frustrated did you break the mustang so got a saddle on it twice now um the first time you know did some saddle desensitization or whatever and she's like hey let's get her in the round pen and usually i guess usually when you really cinch that saddle down and you send them running like they'll just start bucking yeah yeah well she didn't she just kind of trotted around she was like oh it's very unusual um let's try and get you on it and i was like yeah i this whole time i'm thinking she wouldn't ever put me in a situation that's dangerous right right (laughs) So I slowly work up to it, and then I get on her in the saddle. She does nothing. She's not bucking, not anything. Nice. And um, Angie's sitting there filming the whole time. she got a bit in or anything? No, no bit. Just like a a harness Harness, on, right? Just trying to do baby steps. And uh, she's like, I cannot believe she hasn't thrown you yet. And I was like, wait, I didn't know this was a real possibility of getting thrown. She's like, yeah, of course. So it it was great, you know, um, and then the second time I actually threw a saddle on and then got her out of the round pen and kind of trotted around the property. She's doing really well. My worry is that I'm 
gonna expect her to do really well continuing and get frustrated if she like relapses or is oh she definitely will because you're not going to be there all the time right that yeah like actually being gone this mm -hmm. this week i'm worried about getting back having to it'll be all over not necessarily all the steps i was raised with horses and my dad Mm -hmm. uh, i can remember had a a white arabian horse with like red eyes Mm -hmm. and this thing was beautiful but man, that thing had a temper. And my dad was not a small guy. He was a big dude, you know, like 6'1", 6'2", and weighed 220, 230 pounds, you know. And he would get on that thing and let it know he's he's the boss here, you know. And um, even beforehand, you know, it just, I don't know, my dad was already that way. You know what I mean? I think anybody feared him. And yet that horse recognized that they seemed to get along great. I'd go out there even to try to brush it or do anything. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. I better be ready and already have a plan, a strategy of where the hell I'm going to go. And it's nowhere near the barn because that's where they, they'd, you know, end up. If you get up on them, they get pissed. A lot of times that's where they run. Yeah. They run to the barn and get your head knocked yeah, out going through hand. the door. Or, it is. That's the weirdest part is um, the horses pick up, <clears throat> pick up on that. And it's like body language, but there's something else. You know, she's trying to tell me like, hey, your body language is like very aggressive going to these They horses. can smell that kind of stuff. Right, then. but the attitude or whatever that I'll get from a particular horse versus when she goes up, they quickly submit to her. And I'm like, you're a tiny, you know, 100 But have you also seen that with dogs though? I mean, people, you know, certain people, like a dog would just roll on its back and, you know, show submissiveness and stuff. And I think it's the same thing with all animals. Yeah. Some people just have that gift. They just have that calmness, but yet... They're in control calmness. You, well, know. you know, you're talking about horses, this 1,200-pound animal that <laughs> very quickly hurts you, and she just commands respect with no, like, aggression or intimidation. I, I haven't figured it out yet, so I'm trying to learn that secret. But um, it's it's been great. You know, I really found a new sense of purpose or, um, you know, work to do out there. So that has helped my transition a lot with how slow work has been and you know, it's not team life. I'm not training for the next deployment or the next trip or school. So um, thankfully I found this, you know, it's, it's done a lot for me. I can, I can definitely see that. We hear a lot of equine therapy has been very helpful with guys struggling with post-traumatic stress and um, just trying to, if nothing else, decompress back from combat. I mean, there's something to be gained. I think if you have that kind of opportunity when you return and you're wanting to decompress to find an organization that supports you in that way um, because you know it allows for you to just focus on the animal the animal to you know be needed uh, needing you in some ways to feed it to take care of it and everything else and that bond to be formed there's a lot that can be gained from it well, and it, uh, it, it kind of checks all the boxes that we're looking for right? yeah it's dangerous mm-hmm. it's it takes continuous effort it's very difficult there's an immediate gratification and the delayed gratification and you have to keep up with it mm. and i'm sure maybe you've noticed this too but you meet a lot of people mm-hmm. in the horse world no nobody owns a horse and it's just them and the horse and they just do it all themselves you're if you have a horse or you're in the horse world you're going to need help and the good thing about the horse world is even if you hate my guts if i call you up at midnight i'm like hey i need help with my horse it's life and death that person that you maybe don't get along with so well is going to help you out and so you get a sense of community as well yeah I, and it's I've definitely noticed that there is a horse community <clears throat> community that's tight and they all know each other and work with each other. Um, the biggest thing I've got, like 
you know, he just mentioned off all those things I would completely agree with, you know, the the inherent risk, the danger level, the sense of gratification, gratification both near term and long term. Um, something that's really done for me is kind of forced me to relearn the entire spectrum of emotion, mm. um, which I'm going to speak for myself, but I would also say that it's probably almost a generalization among the soft guys is we're forced to compartmentalize emotions because of things that happen on deployments or, or whatever. So a lot of guys, myself, come really like an emotional robot, right? Good at exhibiting anger or frustration or whatever, but very bad at exhibiting empathy or love or you know, any of those things. So working with a horse and working with therapy and all these other things, but it's forced me to kind of relearn how to, how to be patient, how to feel content with um, working with another animal, with learning to love another animal and getting it to trust me. And patience is huge, you know, and I've started to see a slow change. Um, so I, I, again, I think, you know, the equine therapy thing could be huge because it's you're not going to be successful with training a horse or working with a horse if you can't access that entire spectrum of emotions. If you're just angry or shut off the whole time, you're not going to get anywhere with the horse. So it, that's what it's done for me personally. Yeah, and I'll add like if because I agree 100 percent, I feel the same way. I think it's done the same thing for me. But the other thing I've noticed, too, is if you walk into a round pen, like you're good at faking it if you're in, in soft because mm -hmm. you have bad days and you still got to suck it up and go do it. Or you got to go stand in front of somebody and, and do a brief and you, you want them to give you your, your shot or your mission. So, you know, you're going to present well. But what that does, if, if you walk into a round pen or a paddock with a horse, your body language might be right. And you, externally you're saying the right things and your tone might be correct, but inside you're bottled up, you got some rage or frustration or anger or whatever, that animal's going to pick that up. Mm -hmm. It's crazy when you think about that. Yeah, too, it's like know? telepathy. They pick it up and you, you can't fake it. Yeah. And you will you see it when you see guys learning about natural horsemanship or how to train a horse and they're like, okay, I'm doing the same thing I was doing yesterday and it's not working. Mm. Like, All right, well, let's step out. Let's take a deep breath. Let's talk about what's going on internally. It's like, okay, you're angry about something else or you came in here with an expectation you have to address it. So you can't fake it. You can't hide it. You can't bottle it up. It, it's all out there on the table. That's, with that's awesome. The, the fact that you can actually use that as an example of something that you wouldn't think um, it's not human. So it's something that's picking up on things that we as humans sometimes don't even pick up on. And it's an opportunity that opens up communication to say, hey, dude, there's something here. And the, whether it's me somebody you need to talk to about this mm -hmm. you know and and uh, deal with the issue because that animal and then you know you want to be with that animal so you're going to work hard perhaps at whatever is what you feel is wrong or you know you need to work on and everything so that you can get back with the animal that's a, that's exactly it is you know she has told me a number of times like hey you, you can't go in there not in the right mindset or you know you're upset or frustrated with something you know, cause I've seen it where she just refused to work with me. I'm like, I don't get it. I'm being nice. You know, all these things <laughs> with, your, and, uh, with your teeth gritted. Yeah. Damn it. I'm being nice. I'm being just, nice. just love me. Um, <laughs> so, and because I'm such a, once there's a task presented in front of me or something that I want to accomplish, like I, I have to get it done. So this is forcing me to be like, Oh, you know, okay. What is, 
what is bothering me this day? What do I need to do to like work through this and get out of it? And then you, whether it's the next day or later that day, you come back and it is, it's like a complete change. The horse knows now like, oh, okay. He's, he's, he's dealt with it. Yeah, he's felt, he's felt this out. He's dealt with it and now. Crazy. And then she'll work with me, no issue. And I'm like, oh, it's so frustrating, you know. But it's <laughs> it's an accountability thing, at least for me. Like I, I, I was just getting ready to say that. Wow, isn't that cool that the animal is kind of holding you accountable to keep working on something so that when you come in, it's like, okay, when you come into my house, right? Yeah. get your shit together. Yep. You know, have your shit together. Yep. Well, you know? and ultimately accountable because if you try to force the issue. It's going to recognize it. It's a 1,200-pound animal. It's going to kick you or do something and, you know. So you better – process yeah get right or it, so that's again it's the danger aspect of it there's some real skin in the game and i think that's why it's effective for veterans yeah that's great now i want to get to something that you said that we're trying to break i think within the soft community a stigma of and you mentioned and i wrote it down force to compartmentalize mm. so if you ask command, they would say, oh, no, Ryan, we're not we're not forcing you to compartmentalize. No, we don't want you to do that. But there is that stigma that's held between one another that, man, you got to bottle this up because right now I need Ryan focused as a 18 Bravo kicking the door down, not Ryan. I'm dealing with these issues. Yeah. And <clears throat> I, I don't want to like bad mouth it because it is an unfortunate necessity of the job you know something bad happens early on your trip you can't just pack it up and go home you know so you have to compartment like that operation where dustin was killed it was right on infill so <clears throat> the decision was you know hey do we continue mission or do we just pack our bags up and head back to base you know and the team sergeant command at times said hey we got a medevac with the delta he's 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 in the best hands possible we still have enough to accomplish the mission. Let's not make this operation a waste. And they, you know, if you would have asked a lot of the other guys, maybe myself included, I would have been, meant, fuck this, let's head back, you mm -hmm. know, but them being older, more mature and seeing the bigger picture and kind of being emotionally detached, which they needed to be in that instance, said, hey, let's push on. And I think that helped a lot of guys because then we got our minds off of whatever we can't control back at the roll three. and whatever's right in front of me, hey, accomplishes. And we did, we finished the operation, got back, and then now we can deal with what's happening back here. But, um, but that's that's tough too, because once you close it off, you talked about it earlier in the show, once you, you know, it's harder for you to crack that bubble again. It's harder for you to get in there and especially as deep as you probably need to go. Whereas, you know, you go through all the phases, you know, seven phases or whatever it is of grief, you know, that people end up going through. Sometimes you go through it, people deal with it differently, either rather quickly or it ends up taking a longer period of time. Well, what we don't want to have happen is for it to take three, four weeks, you know, a, you know, months or whatever to pull yourself together. So what we do is we end up saying, hey, you got to you got to bottle that up. We'll deal with that when we get back, you know, and the whole mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, but if you can process it as deeply as you can quickly in the beginning, it's almost better. Thinking, you know, therapeutic wise. Right. Well, there is a normal grieving process, right? But like what you're talking about, it's almost instead of like paying for your truck and cash, you're deferring your you payments. Get an, yeah, you're getting a, you got it, but you're going to pay for grief. it though. And with interest typically. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's what I was just getting ready to say. So 
I have a question for you. Have you, and it's kind of personal, so if you don't want to talk about mm-hmm. it, that's fine. Um, but I'm wondering, compared to like a normal grief experience from like, say, a family member or somebody you're close to dying in the civilian world, do you feel like you've processed that differently than you have uh, so somebody you have to grieve that died in combat or while you're on duty? I don't think I've ever really been bothered about any like deaths in, <clears throat> deaths in the family or anything like that. It's, you know, uncles or grandparents or whatever. And it's just kind of like, oh, it's, and you know, that sucks, but it's never really like bothered me. Um, that's, that's tough. Most of these instances with works with buddies getting killed, it's, you know, initially when it happens, you get back to base and you see the sergeant major and the major standing there. You already know what it is. They, they never meet you at the ramp. So I already knew what it was. Um, and then you have that initial period with the boys, everybody, you know, you're mourning, you're crying, you're, you just got slammed with that loss. But then after that, I really, I don't even know how to articulate it. I really don't feel like I struggle with a lot. There's, there wasn't a lot of time in the days or weeks afterwards where I'm sitting in my room crying, crying to myself or, or really focused on feeling the emotions. It's just kind of like, you know, sad, of course, just like, all right, well, you know, what can I do next? How can I help these younger guys deal with it? Or like, you know, when are we going to get back on the horse? So I have always been particularly bad at processing as much as I can right then and there and just be like, well, it's something I deal with when I got home. But for now, I need to make sure the boys are doing all right. I need to show them like, hey, it's okay to get back in the gym. Hey, it's okay to get back to work. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I can't remember when the last time was that I was allowed myself to feel that broad spectrum of emotions to really like deal with it. And I still hadn't, you know, it's something I continue to work on. But at this point, especially the 2010 trip, I, that stuff is so buried and calcified. I don't know if I could pull it out you know it's it needs to be because it still has residual issues i mean a decade later still something i'm dealing with but i it's hard something i have to yeah. still figure out so yeah thanks man i was i was asking because i was kind of wondering it, it occurs to me like if most grief it's normal it's expected like you said your uncles your grandparents like people die we know that mm-hmm. and you you experience the loss and then you you walk through that seven stages of grief process and then it's kind of not gone but resolved Mm -hmm. and it seems like the longer i go the more people i talk to that have served and lost people that way that kind of never goes away and like you said like i don't need to dig up the loss of my grandfather who i was close with and i love very much Mm -hmm. because i processed that in the moment but man once a week I think about somebody I lost while I was serving and it's like it's bleeding out and like you said that 2010 experience like that's in you it's calcified and you, you say so maybe it probably does need to be brought out and addressed mm-hmm. you know and I don't know if that's good or bad I'm not a therapist obviously but I think there's a difference because of compartmentalization because you're forced to continue mission and you, you have to mm-hmm. it's absolutely necessary <clears throat> it's a good tool but that does delay the normal grieving process. Mm-hmm. And then what happens next? 
Well, so when is I, there is there is there a way to systematically approach that? You know, that's the question right. that I have. I, I, I think what I appreciate and respect is that you you are okay with saying I'm not I'm not fixed. I'm not you know I'm not okay a hundred percent. I work on it every day you know, or I work on it, you know, and stuff. It's not, it's, it's more of a process. And I think, you know, we kid ourselves if we think it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you have to deal with it. You you have to be able to understand that it's, it's something that is always going to be there. And even if you were to crack the nut on on what you calcified from 2010, um, I think that would still be there to some degree. It's then how you take that bit of information and what you do with that um, with your, within your own life, within your own relationships, and not only that, but mentoring others and helping them. Um, and I think maybe this is a great segue into something that you decided that you took upon yourself that you wanted to create, which is the Guardian Group. Gorilla Group. Gorilla Group. Yep. I'm sorry. Yep. Oh, the Gorilla Group. Yep. Why did I say Guardian Group? Gorilla Group. That's a good name, though. Yeah. Somebody better take actually, that. <laughs> actually, I think somebody has. That's what gets stuck in my head. Gorilla Group. So uh, tell us a little bit about the Gorilla Group and why it is that you decided to to put that thing together. Um, so after this last trip, uh, when Dustin got killed, get back to Washington, um, was in that same boat, post-2010 boat. Um, I knew what I needed to do, and I looked back at my time in Hawaii and said, okay, I got off a rough trip, dealing with a lot of things. Back in 2011, I just drank a lot and it you know, caused a lot of issues. I don't want to repeat that path. So what did help me in 2011 after the Afghan trip? Well, getting back on meds, seeing a therapist, but what really did it, like I said, was you know hanging out with those, those other people, like-minded individuals, learning new things like spearfishing or scuba diving, getting back into surfing, doing all these things. So <clears throat> get in Washington and I said, okay, I need to get back to that kind of environment. So I started looking around, made some new friends that were always going out rock climbing or skating or doing these things that I wanted to get back into or learn. They were always doing something. It wasn't like on the weekends, like, oh, what bar are we going to? It's like, oh no, we're going to drive over to, you know, to the east coast to the east side of washington and go rock climbing or we're going to go out to the ocean and we're going to go surfing and do so i started getting myself back into that environment and it was it was helping a lot you know because most of my buddies there were either still in group just got out of group or were you know in the regular army now in the guard or there were even like civilians in the mix but everybody kind of had the same Mindset, And it was just like, I want to continuously learn. I want to experience life. I don't want it to just be going to a bar and hangovers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what it was. And I knew it in Hawaii. I said, I knew there's something to this. You just need to figure it out. And then again, experience it again in Washington. I said, this is something valuable that I want to make available to more people. Because I had people on Instagram like, oh, man how'd you learn how to rock climb? Like, I'm interested in it, but I don't know who to talk to. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to buy, you know, all these things. So um, a lot of my buddies in Washington or a few of my buddies in Washington, whether they were active or in the guard, they also had a side business going on that they had started. So I kind of started looking at this. I was like, well, let's, let's make this a thing, a company 
and we can put like a foundation to it. So they helped me out with that, getting that started. And then it just very quickly progressed because once people had a way to reach out and get linked up with other people, it's, I like it because it's decentralized. I don't have to do a lot of the work to connect people, right? I want to grow the network to a point where the network can connect itself. Mm -hmm. And it's no one person running it. It's the community running it. So got it going good in Washington, um, started doing events. And then now that some of those guys that helped me get it started out there have now spread out, you know, Vegas, Salt Lake, whatever. And then now I'm on the East Coast. So we're now we're just focused on growing these different little pockets and kind of expanding it to, again, bring in more people who in turn will bring in more people to just get everybody connected. And there's a there's a gap between the people that want to learn and do these things and then the people on the right who are already doing these things already have the knowledge. But there's this gap. And you would figure with social media, that gap should be very small. It's me sending a direct message to somebody I don't know, like, hey, can I come out? But people won't do it. There's there's ego involved. They, they don't want to be, I was this way as well, especially with rock climbing. They don't want to be the new guy that doesn't know what they're doing or embarrasses themselves. You just, you have to fucking get over that because it is worth it. Once you get over it, like you learn that new experience, you meet new friends, you do all these things. So we're trying to bridge that gap and make it, uh, easier for people to come out, learn new things, meet new people, trying to get enough money raised up to have extra extra surfboards, extra rock climbing gear. So, like, you literally have no excuse. You just have to show up. We have mm-hmm. people that have the equipment for you. They have the knowledge. You just got to show up. You know what I mean? And uh, it's it's done a lot for me, and I have heard what's done for other people. It, it, that's great, you know, Um it gives me a sense of purpose to be able to like help facilitate this thing and make it a thing. Um, I have to be careful though, because I, I will pour all my effort into trying to help other people or set these other things up that I neglect taking care of myself. And, you know, recently the last two months been struggling pretty bad with that because I haven't been doing the things I know I need to, to take care of myself. So I had to force myself to take a step back and, Thankfully, I have a couple other people that I've brought on to help run different aspects of the company. And I've had to tell them like, hey, I'm gonna take a small step back and be less involved with this because I need to get myself back on track. If I'm gonna be any good to anybody else, I need to be good for myself and my family first. So, um, and that's where the horses have come into play. You know, I've, I've taken a step back from doing events or a lot of the business side of the Gorilla Group and really just kind of working on getting myself recentered, um, And I'm still in the process of that, but um, it's, the company has grown very quickly. And I think that's just a testament to how bad people want to be connected. You know, in the age it's of social- It's a whole tribe, media. you know. Right. Especially with, um, we started right at the beginning of COVID. So people are feeling- Mm, even Dis- more so disconnected and distant and yeah. you know you figure with social media everybody should be connected but it's that's a very shallow sense of connection people are longing for that interpersonal connection hanging out together in person yeah not over facetime or direct messages so um it's great and just trying to help out wherever we can there's a lot of great organizations out there um that people can choose from but it, it ultimately comes down to them having to make that first step and like reaching out and getting in touch with these organizations or getting in touch with somebody and just 
get off your couch, get rid of Netflix, stop going out to the bars every night. You know, it's it's just not doing anything for you. So well, and nobody's going to hold you, you know, and and you know, feel like you should, like you said, have to live up to a certain standard. Every if you call it a beginner's course, then no one's going to want to show up who feels like they want to be recognized as a beginner, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of event. If you call it intermediate, you know, they don't want to show up because they may not know anything. And it, right. so it's more like if you just call it, hey, we're going to go rock climbing, you know, and we're going to have all levels of skills. If you don't know, we'll teach you. If you don't, blah, blah, blah. People will probably feel a lot more comfortable just because it's a relaxed environment. Mm-hmm. I think what you're doing is very similar to a lot of uh, other organizations like that come to mind, like team red, white, and blue and stuff like that, who really um, set a great model that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, North Carolina and this is where I'm at and you've got to come to me, you know, type of thing. It's, you know, wherever you are, you're going to find a community of like-minded people Mm -hmm. and no one's going to hold you to a certain standard. You know, we're all dealing with something, you know, whether you're a civilian dealing with depression and your own personal life issues and everything, or you're a veteran, we can all learn from one another. It's a it's a great thing, and actually, it starts bridging the divide. I would imagine between civilians and is that what you were? Yeah, that, that was a uh, that was a a consequence or an an added thing that I didn't even see going into it. That I realized once we started in Washington is uh, uh, over half the people that were initially involved and in, um, started coming in were civilians, zero military background, and I learned a ton from them because they yeah. don't it's not an echo chamber i'm not surrounding myself with people with the similar experiences or similar way of thought so then i get challenged on a new way of thinking or a new way of a new perspective um and i love that and they also need that as well like some of my friends that never in the military you know they felt that they needed that as well they were surrounded by their own echo chamber of their civilians working in their office or or whatever and they had no idea of our perspective or our way of thinking so it's like a it's a symbiotic relationship where both people are getting thing out of it and we're again bridging that gap um i you know and i love it i don't necessarily love hanging out with just military dudes outside of work because Mm -hmm. what's always gonna get talked about fucking work man yeah. i hate talking about work outside no of work, i know? totally get it when i when i moved to the um atlanta area i was stationed at fort mcpherson and and so they sat down you had to go through the housing and in order to help you know find a place and i already knew kind of where i wanted to go but she um you know in order to get my little piece of paper checked off and everything with the stamp on it i went through their little briefing and they laid out a map and they go so we got military over here and we've got military up here and all that and i looked at that and i go I'm so glad that you did yeah, that. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. I'll be avoiding that. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. I actually ended up moving to a location that wasn't near. But I think what you do also is you open up, inter, you know, your you work on your interpersonal skills, you work on your communication, you work on your understanding. Because when I got out of the military, I didn't talk about me being in you know, prior service for a long time. Mm-hmm. I actually hid it mm-hmm. because I felt like there was – um, a stigma or uh, an impression by people that if you went in the military, you had either a choice of going to jail or going to the military. That's one perspective. Another one is you were too stupid to get a real job. Mm. So you went into the military or, oh, you just went and um, how many people did you kill? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, so there's all these different negative connotations, you know, that carries uh, over to, you know, how they look at uh, military personnel. So I kind of never talked about it. So 
I had watched a lot of buddies that got out and they struggled with, you know, the reoccurring theme I kept hearing from them is like, oh man, I don't fit in with any of these civilians. I don't know how to talk to them. Always said. Right. So man, let's help ourselves out while we're still in. And hey, don't just hang out with the dudes you work with, you know, expand your horizons, hang out with civilians, make friends with them. So you are not so ostracized when you get out and you're like, oh, I'm just speaking a complete different language. Um, Oh, man, there was a second thing that I had. Uh, There's an old saying, too, that we've talked about it on the podcast before. Maybe this will help you. Is that you are who you surround yourself with, obviously, and it's a circle of five, typically, is mm -hmm. the number that they end up using. So who are the five people that you spend the most amount of time with because you are the sum of it? Right. Yeah. So I remember uh, I had a buddy brought this to my attention. He's a National Guard SF dude, but he's always been – SF guys love to say that, oh, we think outside the box. No, we just think in a different box. We're very terrible at actually thinking outside the box. But this guy <laughs> was great, um, and he challenged me. You know, he was <clears throat> he was like, hey, if you met somebody random on the street and they asked you, you know, you guys introduce yourself, change names. He's like, you know, who are you? You know, how are you going to respond? And I realized What's that your the, elevator speech, yeah. Right. The very first thing that comes out of my mouth is like, oh, I'm a Green Beret. He was like. So you are your job. He was like, that's a, you know, if mm. you worked at Best Buy and somebody asked you who you were, are you going to be like, well, I'm a, I'm a salesman at Best Buy? You know, maybe, but. Probably not. You're probably not, right? Yeah. So he's like, there's a lot of ego tied to our job inherently because you need that esprit de corps. They, they pump you up about how good you are, else, yeah. whatever. But he was like, you have to be something besides your job, you know? And that is really another driving force that led me into like, what am I doing outside of work, you know? You just going out drinking all the time or sitting at home at Netflix. How do you like, define yourself too? Right. And that's something I'm still trying to figure out. But now I try to make it a point when, you know, um, somebody's like, Hey, who are you? Like, tell me about yourself. I, I try to leave work completely out of it. Like, Oh, I enjoy photography and horseback riding and, you know, I surf when I can. And, you know, I'm a dad and like all these other things that isn't my job because that's the, I think the pitfall that a lot of us fall into is, our identity coincides with our job and that is just not going to set us up for success when we get out. Whether That's it's, deep, but I think good I'm, shit. I think it's a hundred percent accurate. Oh, wow. hundred percent accurate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, I, I lost a buddy and he was kicking ass in the army and great family and all these things. And I was talking to another friend, a mutual ranger buddy of mine. And I was like, you know, how did this happen to our guy? And I listed off all the things I just said. And he's like, you just listed off his resume. Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're not a resume. And that's, like you said, Green Beret, Ranger, or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing in the military. Like, that's that's a bullet point on a resume. It's not a person or it's, an identity. It's so too, it's, like, it, really cool that you brought that up. Well, I think you don't necessarily need to define yourself. Like, you could just be Rob, you know, and you like the things you like, and you do the things you do. I, I think that's important. My counter argument when my buddy first brought this up is, you know, I was like, well, you know, they asked me, like, who you are, right? So, like, of course, I'm going to tell them about my job. And he was like, no, no, no. They asked who you were. They asked what you did, right? Ooh. They will eventually ask, what do you do for work? But when somebody's like, oh, so, like, who are you? You know, you immediately resert, revert back to your ego um, propped job. Like, oh, I'm a green bread. That's the first thing you're going to throw yeah. out because, you know, it feels good and people know about it. And, like, you know, you want that respect where it's like, they didn't ask for your job. They will eventually when, you know, they ask what you do, but, and then you could, 
either just come straight out with it or just, you know, oh, I'm in communications. Oh, what do you do like in communications? Well, I'm actually in the military and do communicate. You know, you can play that route. But he's like, they're not asking you your job. They're asking you who you are. Like, who who do you see yourself as a person, right? And he was just like, you know, I think it's a dangerous thing if you associate yourself with your job. You know, it's so that was something I had to take a hard look at and kind of reevaluate myself. Um, and that's been the other great thing about coming to SWIC is it's allowed me to pull myself out of my job and I'm not saying I, I don't go to work and I don't put my best foot forward and put an effort there. Sure. But, um, but you're getting a more broader, you're getting a chance now maybe to see a bigger picture, not just with the job, but also with your life. Right. This, this job is a paycheck yeah. and it's a job that I enjoy, but this job is not my life. My life is everything outside of being at work. And that's the area that I've neglected for so long. And Even when you get out, the military doesn't define you. Right. Yeah. And I, I can't speak from experience because, you know, I'm still in, but I have seen guys that get out and that is something they struggle with. And I don't want to struggle with that. So I'm, you know, I have six years left till I retire. So I'm starting now. Like, how can I set myself up? So by the time I transition, it's like, oh man, long time coming. This is great. Now I can really flow into what I want to do, what makes me happy and just leave work behind, you know? Um, so I, I try hard at that, but that's also, you have to check a lot of ego, you know, for you not to associate, associate yourself with work, especially for soft guys, you know, yeah. our, whether we like to admit it or not, there's a lot of ego tied to our job. Well, I think there is, but there's also an expectation. Like I go to different foundations and I, sometimes I represent different, different people. I might speak or something and I'll leave and people are like, well, you didn't, you introduced yourself and you didn't say that you were a ranger or a sniper or whatever. I'm like, yeah, we're, we're talking about horses. Like that's not, not that important. Like that's not the most important thing. And if I'm trying to represent the veteran population, the first thing I need to do is just I say, yeah, I'm a veteran. Check that box. I don't need to say I'm a veteran and I did X deployments and X schools and have these accolades. Like that's not, that's not the point. That's it. But it's an expectation. People, will, they'll call you on it. Like, oh, you just met this person. You didn't tell them that you were a Green Beret. You didn't tell them that you were whatever it was that you did. So it, it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. you know, you, you'll find that. There are a lot of opportunities, though, too. I'll give this advice. And I, I didn't recognize it until probably my, I don't know, 12th or 14th year as well, is that there are opportunities within the military that can help you transition easier. It's it's It means that you're going to have to come off of the hardcore, you know, uh, team guy kind of approach and attitude, but you are going to be transitioning at some point. We all do. Mm -hmm. So you know that already six years out, you have an opportunity to go, okay, maybe I need to take those assignments now that help prepare me and add more tools to my toolbox so that when I do make that transition, it aids my company better. It helps me better as a quality of life. You know, I don't feel the stress going and making the transition. Um, I've learned these additional skills and techniques. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that's the value of Gorilla Group, too, is you'll have a network outside of your military network. Who's going to challenge you, it sounds like, to even yeah. the group guy did, like, you know, the, the National Guard guy. But it could have been a civilian that could have easily have asked you the same question. Right. You know, well, he's basically is because that's not what defines him as well as being a, you know. Yeah, I mean, because it's like if I ask – any of my civilians about that, the first thing they're coming up with is not what they do for a job. You know, it's like, oh, well, I, you know, 
backcountry skier. Like, you know, they, they list out the things that they feel that makes them who they are. It's not really their, their profession. So um, it's, it's a constant learning point. I'm always learning and adapting to everything that's going on with this community. Um, and it's, I'm very thankful for the career I've had up to this point, but I am also very confident and comfortable with stepping away from a team and slowing things down because I have to force myself to work on everything else besides my job. My job will always be here. It's great for a paycheck, but you know I need to focus on my kids. I need to focus on me. I need to focus on my family. I need to put in as much effort into all of those things that actually matter for when I get out in six years because I've put in a ton of effort over the last 14 years with getting to where I am now. Um, so now it's time for me to hit cruise control on, on work and really pour an effort into everything else. So um, that's... I'll say this too, and someone I think a long time ago said this on an episode, so I won't, I'm kind of going to paraphrase, I won't say it exactly as that person did, but don't look at things of, man, will I ever regret doing something? Because regret really shouldn't exist. It's mm. more of you chose a path and you're going down a path that's going to have multiple turns and forks in the road and decisions that you're going to have to make going forward. But you will never see what you would have done over on this side. You think it would have been better. It may have had very different outcomes. So you've you've got to tackle the day. And I think that's the biggest thing that people need to realize is that live in the moment. You never know when your time's going to be up. Absolutely. That's something I... <clears throat> have worked on a lot and continue to have to work on every day is just being present in the day, not having anxiety about the future and working myself up with something that is in the future. You know, it's good to have goals and have a sense of direction and purpose, but the only thing I can worry about is today and what's right in front of me. I can't do anything about the past. I can't change what happened. I can't do anything. I can only focus on today and set myself up for a better tomorrow. And that's very difficult in today's day and age with um, social media, internet, whatever. It's very difficult for us to just be grounded with what's mm -hmm. in front of us and be present. Um, and that was a huge thing that meditation did for me and something I'm trying to get back to is just being present and just taking today for today and letting whatever happened in the past or yesterday just go. I can't change it. I can learn from it and I can apply those lessons to my present, but can't change it you just need to let it be what it is and just focus on today and just be present um it's good that you're saying that now i will be the first to admit that i was um not that fortunate it happened many years after being out of the military before it all caught up with me but i think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about compartmentalizing and all that at some point you're going to pay the piper mm. you're going to you're going to pay either pay now and i think there used to be an old midas commercial you either pay for it now or you'll pay for it later but one way or another, you're going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very much the same thing when it comes to relationships, our own personal health, um, you know, how we approach life, how we think of things, all that kind of stuff. You're going to you're going to end up paying for it at some point. And, and it's better to chew it a little bit at a time. So you, you've got plenty of runway here. Mm -hmm. And the other side is don't think like, well, I never know how long I'm going to be here. So I need to go ahead and rush and get everything done you know and get on with it and stuff instead just again take it slowly um it certainly helped my stress level 
um, my family life and everything else. But that was a hard lesson, you know, for me personally. Yeah. I don't think that's unique to the military either, though. Yeah. It, might, it might be exacerbated by our experience, but I mean, I think everybody's struggling with that, right? Striking that balance, being in the moment. <clears throat> yeah, and that's the, you know, if we only surround ourselves with people we work with, it's an echo chamber and we think we're different or unique or like, oh, nobody else can relate to my struggles. When you start surrounding yourself with other people, civilians, you realize that everybody has those those issues. Everybody has that thing that they're working to overcome or that, that anxiety of the future or whatever. So we're not that unique or different. We just, our experiences may be different, but how we're trying to work through those things or process those things, everybody in the world is dealing with that, you know? And yeah. you could learn a lot from somebody that has never been in the army or has never deployed how they're dealing with their grief or how they're processing their emotions. You could learn from them because maybe you're just so pigeonholed into this one direction that you think is the way you need to go, that you're completely missing this other path that could be more beneficial to you that somebody could bring to your attention and be like, Oh man, I never even thought about that. So, but that means you got to be in the moment. You got to be open. You got to be aware. You, yeah. You have to get it's that vulnerability though. I mean, it, it, it is. I, I struggle with that constantly with checking my ego. Like jujitsu for me is the biggest ego check. I, if any sport with a ball, I can get to it and I'll learn it pretty quickly and I'll, I'll do very well at it. Jujitsu for me is a struggle bus. It humbles me because it's, you know, chess with trying to choke somebody out. And, uh, that's why I love it. You know, it's, it's a good tool for, you know, working out and everything, but, um, it's just, it's something that I'm inherently not good at and I can't pick up fast. So it, it keeps my ego in check. You know, it's like, hey, you're not as cool or badass as you think you are because you'll get balled up by this 14-year-old girl real quick. You know? <laughs> so it's it's good. But it, it it's also on that person to go out and find those things that make you be vulnerable because you'll learn a lot from it. Once you kind of put that ego to the side and you allow yourself to be a student again or be vulnerable, you, you will learn and make progress from it so you can see on both sides of what you just described too where you're you're taking it to the extreme of something like you know jujitsu where it really challenges you you're you're having to channel your anger and your emotions and everything within a specific way to equine therapy that's doing some of the same exact things Mm -hmm. meditation everything that you know mindfulness all those types of things they're all the same. They're just tackling it in a very different way. Right. And that is the overall theme of what we try to do with gorilla group is there's no one perfect answer. What rock climbing may really help somebody that may not be your thing. So here's other options, but you need to, you will never know unless you try these other options, right? Like I never thought rock climbing would do anything for me until I was forced to do it and kept going over and over. And then I found this with meditation and rock climbing. I found myself when I'm climbing up these, these cliffs or whatever, I'm almost completely out of my head and I'm fully engaged in the present, but I'm subconsciously like working through these issues, right? Where I'm, I'm physically exerted from climbing up this rock face and I'm solving these problems with physical exertion, which for me has always been a sweet spot. It's usually where I do a lot of good uh, introspective work, but it's almost like an automatic process that's happening in the background where 
I am chewing through and working through these issues without even realizing it because I'm I'm struggling and straining on this rock and problem solving as I'm going up. So I would have never known that had I not been introduced to it. And I had buddies that were very knowledgeable in that sport and they had the extra gear and they forced me to go. So that again, it's that gap that we're trying to close up is like, hey, you don't know what you don't know unless you try it. So try some different things, reach out to different organizations, different companies. You're going to find something that clicks and you'll know it because it'll click and you'll be like, oh, okay. But you have to make yourself vulnerable and you have to give yourself a chance because if you don't, it's you're never going to make any progress. You're not going to go anywhere. So how could somebody find out more about Gorilla Group? Website, um, social so we, media. So we have our website. It's uh, thegorillagroup.com. And then on Instagram, uh, it's at the Gorilla Group. I think there's a period between the and Gorilla and then another one between Gorilla and Group. Um, do we send the emails out? Right now, now that I'm getting settled in North Carolina, have had the great opportunity with linking up with other organizations like um, Gallant Few. They host a, a free rock climbing night. Yeah every Thursday. Bryce. Yeah, great, great dude. Um, and we've seen more and more people from the Bragg area come out that have never rock climbed before and they would never dream of reaching out and like going to Pilot Mountain or something that's really intimidating. But like, hey, here's an indoor gym. Oh, by the way, it's free to get in. There's free equipment rental. There's people here that know what they're doing. Just, no excuse, yeah. Just, just come here yeah. and just climb around and you're gonna realize, man, this is a lot of fun, it's a good workout. Oh, and you get to link up with other people in the area, you know, so just really trying to facilitate um, more opportunities like that uh, on the East Coast, so. Yeah, so when you get um, joined the Gorilla Group, I you're in a newsletter type of thing then, and that's how the emails are distributed as to where things are happening locally to the individual yeah, or so regionally? If you go to the website, you can sign up with your email address, and there's a weekly newsletter that gets put out, uh, kind of recaps uh, previous events, talks about upcoming events, things like that. What we're currently trying to work on now, there's an event page on there where you can go in and, again, trying to make this a decentralized process where if you're in let's say Alabama and you are big into duck hunting or whatever you can go on there and post an event where you can host people and they can come out and learn how to duck hunt with you or just other duck hunters that you want to get linked up with as the community continues to grow this is something we want to turn into an app where it's almost almost like a I don't know, like a Craigslist type of app where you can pick your region or state or whatever and you can say hey I'm really into rock climbing, looking for other rock climbers, or I have extra gear, and if you want to learn, then come out and learn. So I want to make this a really decentralized thing and just make it easier for people to get connected on their own without me or anybody else involved. Like, hey, this is something that the community needs to do for itself. Yeah. So, um, It's fantastic. Yeah. And I'm uh, really thankful for the, the opportunity just to – be a part of it, you know, yeah. just to see everything that's going on. So it's it's done a lot for me. So I hope it continues to do a lot for other people. Ryan, I appreciate you coming on the show, brother, I appreciate and you talking guys about me. Yeah, it's good. 